In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. This pandemic continues to affect not just New York City's health, but its economy. Almost 100,000 New York City residents filed for unemployment benefits the week of May 4th alone. Total claims in the age of coronavirus are now at one million. That's one out of every eight New Yorkers. Is this a blip? Or is it the beginning of a fundamental change? A couple of weeks ago, via Zoom from my home on Long Island, I spoke to the two people perhaps best able to answer these questions. Tom Wright has both the perspective and the influence to shape New York's future. He's the head of the century-old Regional Plan Association. Many New York fixtures that we take for granted, from a pedestrian Times Square to the George Washington Bridge, came from the mines at the RPA. Every 20 years, they put out their plan, thinking about how the demographics and economy of the tri-state area are changing and what policies will best meet these new challenges. The last one came out in 2017 into a very different world than the one we inhabit now. Catherine Wilde is the head of the Partnership for New York City. She's on every most powerful New Yorkers list every year. That's because the partnership is the main conduit for communication, lobbying, and philanthropy for New York City's major corporations, J.P. Morgan, JetBlue, IBM, Google, Deloitte, Bloomberg, Blackstone, the list goes on and on. Anytime they want to speak with one voice, it's Kathy they go through. Her career began in 1970s Brooklyn during what had been the worst of the city's then fiscal crisis. Despite crime, crumbling transit, and terrible city services, Wilde helped lead public-private efforts that revitalized the neighborhood of Sunset Park. She sees foreboding parallels between New York's current crisis and the last time industry fled the city. Well, in the 1970s, we saw the industrial waterfront literally disappear in the matter of five years. American Can, American Machine and Foundry, Bethlehem Steel, Rheingold Brewery, uh, Domino Sugar, Revere Sugar. They were gone in five years between 70 and 75. And Brooklyn shrunk by 400,000 people. The city shrunk by a million people, lost half its Fortune 500 companies. And there was a ripple effect, both in the economy in terms of unemployment and at the same time in the city fiscal situation. And as you know, in 1975, New York City 
went bankrupt. They were saved by a bailout by the banks and the pension funds, the labor unions. And we got out of that crisis very slowly. It took 40 years. In 1970, Brooklyn's population was 2.6 million people. It did not reach that again until 2019, last year. So it took more than 40 years to come back. That's more what we're looking like if we don't really get our act together quickly in New York City and the greater metropolitan area and figure out how to recoup what this uh, pandemic is doing to us. We have almost a million people lost jobs. So we are really facing a crisis that's very similar, 22% loss of GDP it's, is of our gross city product, of our economic output is what's projected. So we're going to look very much like we did at the end of the 70s when the city was totally broke and people were out of work and leaving the city in droves. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I'd add to what Kathy said earlier was that the million-person loss actually would have been twice as much but for the one really successful policy during that time, which was that we were open to immigrants. And essentially, for every two people who left the city, one rejoined from somewhere around the world. And it would have taken us even longer to recover if we hadn't been an open society. Good point. And under current immigration policy, we won't have that luxury. Exactly. Now, um, describe for people, you go first, Tom, who you represent and what they exactly do. Sure. Uh, Regional Plan Association is a private civic group. We've been around uh, next weekend. It'll be 98 years. And what we've done for almost a century is look at not just New York City and its five boroughs, but the entire metropolitan region, all of Long Island, southwestern Connecticut, the Hudson Valley, northern New Jersey, and think about the long-term um, health, wealth, prosperity, growth, sustainability um, of that entire region. There is no public sector entity that thinks about that. At the federal, state levels, we have a couple things like the MTA and the Port Authority that work on portions of it, but there's nobody kind of thinking about the entire region. So RPA, as an independent voice, has um, once every generation created a long-range plan saying, here are the major transportation investments, the economic development investments, the kinds of policies that we're going to need. And then we advocate for them. And we've been around since things like 9-11 and 2008 and Superstorm Sandy, and we played a role in the rebuilding in each of those. What is the regional plan now that your regional plans are based on a certain level of economic growth and the bottom seems to have fallen out of there? What are you guys talking about in relation yeah, to no, that now? Yeah, no, no. That's absolutely correct. I mean, when we released the plan three years ago, it was about how to deal with the kind of catastrophic growth we were facing at the time. And nowadays, it's going to be much more about what do we do to get back on the path to growth. The way I think about what's happening right now is that certain parts of life and our economy and society have been on pause. And so nobody's going to restaurants. We're all staying home and things. But other parts of our lives, changes that were coming slowly have been accelerated. Um, using Zoom to do a podcast, uh, distant remote learning, telemedicine. And so things that were going to happen over time but were happening fairly slowly have suddenly happened in just a couple of weeks instead. And they're not going to snap back to how they were before. And so we're going to be doing a kind of plan 4.2 after this to take a fresh look at that. Some of the things, I mean, the two most controversial things we proposed three years ago were charging people to drive into Manhattan and shutting the subways down in the middle of the night for maintenance. Um, we're now doing the shutting and we're going to need congestion pricing even sooner 
than next year because I worry that as businesses start to open and people avoid mass transit, we will, like cities in Asia already have, see unbelievable traffic congestion. Were there discussions ever along the way about what we're dealing with now? No, I, I honestly we look at we looked at climate change, we looked at energy policy, we looked at economic policy and things. And we've even talked about public health in terms of social determinants and the built environment. But no, I, I, honestly, we never did see something like this coming. And I, I wish we had, obviously. Now, uh, Catherine Weil, to tell us uh, what group you're working with now and uh, what's their mission, so to speak. Well, for many years, I've worked with the Partnership for New York City, and it's an organization that was created at the end of the 70s uh, by David Rockefeller and the other bankers that worked with organized labor and with Governor Hugh Carey to uh, restructure the city's finances. And Rockefeller felt that the city had uh, gone into a tailspin, business had paid no attention, and as a result, he felt that we should make sure that New York City never have that situation again where no one was paying attention. So he organized the partnership to work with government, with labor, with civic groups like Tom's to bring the business leadership, the CEOs of the city to the table with their resources so that we could solve these kind of challenges. Like Tom, we didn't anticipate a pandemic would be the biggest challenge the city would ever face in the 21st century, but here we are. When did you become involved with the partnership for New York originally? Uh, I went to work for the partnership as a volunteer in 1981 when David Rockefeller announced that he thought it was the responsibility of the business community to rebuild the neighborhoods that had burned down in the 1970s. You were raised in Madison, Wisconsin. I was. What brought you to New York? Um, You're a cheesehead. They said people move to New York because they don't fit in where they grew up. Uh, <laughs> that's, I'm not a cheesehead. I'm not a cheesehead. <laughs> but, uh, but I've been at the partnership. I went there to rebuild neighborhoods. We did over 40,000 units of affordable housing, ownership housing. So if you go to any of the communities of the city that uh, are thriving today but burned down in the 70s and 80s, they're full of owner-occupied homes where people moved out of public housing bought a home at a very low cost on free city land, private bank financing, uh, combination of resources, limited developer profit. That's the kind of solution that we're going to need again today, where everybody's pitching in, the banks, the builders, the community. Uh, the home buyers put down their savings as the down payment for the equity before the houses were built. Um, and it's repopulated the city with, uh, with middle-class families that had fled in the previous decade. It says here that you played a role in the incredible story of New York City's push to make its own ventilators. How did you get involved with that? <laughs> we have an investment fund at the partnership that invests in sort of what, what comes next. And we had invested in a company in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is probably the most exciting economic development project in the 21st century. And so one of the companies there, New Lab, that we had supported, got the idea when we had not enough ventilators in the city for the number of people coming into the ICU, they said, let's invent a ventilator. And in four weeks, it was actually built in a factory in Long Island City. And my role in that was simply when they needed a part to get to the CEO of that company and say, we need a part now. And we know there's a long line for this, but uh, let's get it 
first. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, neurosis and a lot of anxiety uh, uh, out there right now. So there's a lot of speculation of what's going to happen. And I've had people say to me that they anticipate that over the next two to three years, about a half a million people will leave New York City, maybe even more. Many people feel that that New York in particular is is a fetid petri dish of virological threats to them now. They're very, very scared. We live on Eastern Long Island for our weekend slash summer home. And we're out here now living out here since March 12th. We're going to stay out here through the summer. And we have friends of ours who are out here who said, told us they're not going back. They're going to stay in their houses here and enroll their kids in school here or do an online thing. Are you worried about that, Tom? I'm worried about it, but but I, I think it's very addressable. I mean, we did see after 9-11, there were concerns that New York was going to see continued terrorist attacks, and we managed to make the city safe again. Um, the barometer of the city, a lot of it is around the transit system. If people feel safe getting on the subway and buses again, then they'll generally feel safe in New York. They'll feel safe going to a restaurant, or they'll feel safe going to a school or, or an office. And so we've been looking at this through the lens of what's it going to take to make it not just feel safe, but be safe. Do we shift resources toward the transit police and have a lot of transit cops down there saying, if you don't get a mask on, you ain't getting on the subway. That's it. In London, when the tube, before they invested in it, would get overcrowded, they would, during rush hour in the morning, they would close the gates and say nobody's able to get onto the system until some people get off because of the overcrowding conditions. And they were worried about people, I think, literally falling into the tracks. I think that we're going to have to start to actively manage um, these systems much more than we've been doing it. And by the way, earlier today, about 12 hours ago, the New York City subway shut down for the first time in its history so that in the wee hours they could do cleaning and maintenance of the system. It's something we proposed about three years ago, and I took a lot of heat for it. Um, But I think that to make it safe for the 99% of the people who use it between 5 a.m. and 1 a.m., uh, you have to shut it for a couple of hours just to just to do that maintenance. So uh, we've already taken that first very dramatic step, and I think more of those things are going to be coming online. I think the MTA is going to be learning from other global cities about best practices and, and what they're doing to make the system safe. And I think that wearing masks, more frequent cleaning of the system, making sure that it's not uh, overcrowded. You can't just leave it up to bus drivers to tell people they can't get on a bus. You've got to come up with better ways to do it. And so I think all of that's on the table. Well, he's brought the governor has brought in Mayor Bloomberg, who's going to set up a contact tracing system, which will be important for transit, because if you do come in contact with someone who comes down with the virus, you'll be informed, you'll be tracked. There's going to be a whole new public health regime, and New York will probably do that better than any place else in the world and throw more resources at it than any place else in the world. So that's what we've got to sell. Now, on the other hand, I heard about creating space for private officers for folks to work from their Long Island area if they don't want to be at home with their four kids. Um, I heard the same thing today about Palm Beach, Florida, that they're looking at developing similar kind of facilities. And we're going to hear more and more of that. And what we've got to start thinking about, which is something the regional plan has been thinking about for a while, is thinking about our region from northern New Jersey to Fairfield, Connecticut to Long Island and saying, okay, if a third of the people that come into the city want to work from home, how do we make sure that the region as a whole benefits from that? How do we replan our transportation system to work for those people? And what are we going to do most importantly? 
importantly, within New York City to develop the next generation of jobs, whether it's the folks doing public health tracing or, uh, or the other things that we're going to have to develop to reinvent the city. The only other thing I wanted to mention on this note that I'm really worried about that you don't hear much about is our universities. So much of our mm-hmm. leadership in the innovation economy and of the kids, that the talent that stays to New York and, and grows here, comes from overseas to go to our great universities, they're having a terrible time. They had to close down in March, uh, complete the semester, complete the year and summer school online. Uh, They've got people suing them to get their tuition back. They've got horrible time lining up, especially international students for next year who really pay the freight. So all these are issues that we have to figure out. I I think the university situation is something we should be paying a lot of attention to. Uh, One thing I was also curious about is uh, what do you think is going to happen to city, state income taxes and sales taxes in the immediate sense in New York? About um, the state's projecting thirteen billion over the next year um, yeah. of loss. Yeah, the city's about um, seven point four billion. Yeah, reduced revenues. So that's what ten percent or so. Substantial. Yeah. Catherine Wild of the Partnership for New York City with Tom Wright of the Regional Plan Association. Tom has the distinction of being Here's the Thing's only two-time guest. Hello, Tom. How are you? Hey, Alec. Good to see you. Tom, I always assumed that like Paul McCartney, Billy Joel, or Barbara Streisand would be our first we've decided to have <laughs> And it again. only took a pandemic to do it. It's very I'm impressive, you said Tom. That only a virus, Tom, could book you twice. Last year, Tom, fiscal watchdog Nicole Gelinas, and 2021 mayoral frontrunner Corey Johnson came on the show. The discussion was about how to fix the city's troubled transportation agency, the MTA, which is largely controlled from Albany. Long before the crisis of COVID-19, Johnson had strong feelings about Albany's tight grip. The MTA is set up to deflect any level of accountability. So we can talk about all these super important issues on repairing contracting and on negotiating with unions and on expanding the subway system. But until you get down to the fundamental issue of singular accountability and responsibility, everyone is always going to be able to point fingers, which is why I call for municipal control. For our full conversation, text MTA to 70101. That's MTA to 70101. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. 
Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now, more on the post-COVID future with Kathy Wilde and Tom Wright. The New York Region's transit agencies, the Port Authority, the MTA, New Jersey Transit, and the Long Island Railroad have received some money from the Federal CARES Act, but it's not nearly enough. They are facing a devastating operating deficit. Um, they are seeing, you know, roughly 95% of their ridership um, decline. And we are more reliant in, in New York on transit fares paying for operations than anywhere else in the country. In Los Angeles, they subsidize it. They don't, they don't charge people that much. And, and so it, it doesn't make as big a difference. Um, so the MTA is losing about $200 million a week right now because of the loss of ridership on the subways, buses, Long Island Railroad, Metro North. Uh, they got some money from the federal government, but it's not enough. And they're going to need, they've gone back and asked for another $3.9 billion. And if they don't get that, the only option for them is essentially to raid their capital budgets. And to take, they, they had just approved a $51 billion MTA five-year capital plan. It was the largest and historic plan funded by congestion pricing and other things. And if they have to um, raid that for the operations, it means that the system will start to decline in ways. All the things we talked about last time you were on the show. Exactly. The switching signals. The signals and and everything like that. And so it's really important to protect that capital budget. At the same time, the capital plans were created in a different environment. Um, I was talking to the head of the Port Authority the other day, and, you know, they're going to have to take a fresh look and think about whether they can spend the kind of money on on the airports and the the Lincoln Tunnel and the tolls and others that they that they expected, and all of those capital plans were driven by projections of future growth that may not materialize either. So I think a kind of reassessment of the capital plans is going to come. There's going to be a reduction in them. The key is to make sure that we don't raid them too much for the operating. And that we think about what are the new demands that the system's going to have. Again, making sure that the subway is safe, making sure that we can um, collect tolls efficiently and and things like that. Well, the other piece of this is, though, if we can get the federal government to come up with a rational 
response in terms of helping us close the gaps, not just on the transit system, but the loss of city and state revenues and the uh, expenses that have been incurred by the city and state to get us out of the hole. Our tax structure is already uncompetitive, but the inertia of loving New York, loving its cultural activities, its public gatherings, Broadway, all the things that are now gone, at least for the moment, there was a, there was a stickiness to New York that kept us all here paying high taxes, putting up with the longest commute in the country. That That is threatened right now. And to the extent our local government's solution is to raise taxes more, that's going to actually have the exact opposite effect. We'll end up further gutting the city. We've got to figure out how to come together with plans. Number one, we should be fighting together to make sure that Washington comes through with at least half a trillion dollars for cities and states across the country, and then make sure that that money is allocated on the basis of the harm done, the injury done. It doesn't bother you that we're just ladling on more debt for the federal government? Well, since these cities are, our city is responsible for a big chunk of the federal economy. Don't get me started on that. Yeah. And we send $21 billion more in taxes to the federal government than we sure. get back every yeah. year up to now. There vested interest is in making sure that our cities are functional, that we can keep the police going. That's a great point. I don't want to say as goes New York, so goes the country. But it's true. It's true. In that give or taker thing. I mean, you sit there and you want to say to McConnell, you want to say, hey, Kentucky, you guys just live off of all the money you make. Absolutely. You sell coal, and you guys just live off of all the money that you collect, and we'll keep all of our money. I'll give you another number. In the $2.5 trillion that's been allocated so far under the Federal CARES Act, New York got $8,500 per COVID case. Montana, which had a total of 457 cases, received $2.7 million per case. That's how the politics have worked. And when New York was doing great as an economy, that was okay. We subsidized the rest of the country. That situation is reversed. We are the hardest hit city in the world. We're 28% of the deaths in this country were in our city. We have to reverse that conversation and make our case. Is four more years of Trump and his attitude towards cities and those he views as his political uh, non-supporters, does that terrify you for the future of New York? Well, in the case of cities, Trump's bark is a little worse than his bite. I think he's going to support the cities getting this money. I really do. Because because it's in his interest. 11% of export-imports come through the port of New York and New Jersey. We are the entry point to the global marketplace. We are the financial services capital of the world. There's no way that they can write us off. So I, I believe that it is um, in Trump's interest to support New York City. And I think he'll, he usually acts on his interests. Um, Now, Tom, my question for you is, it seems like moments ago that de Blasio was running for president. (laughs) And now, of course, de Blasio is in a lot of hot water and people with a lot of criticism. But I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, even though my attitude about him has evolved. What was he thinking? Do you have a little bit more of an understanding from your position? What was he thinking that he decided to keep things open that way? 
Look, there, there's been an enormous amount of frustration, to put it mildly, from, from in our communities with, with a lot of the decisions that he's made, um, not moving more quickly on, on protections and just kind of not seeming to understand, even to, to this day, as he kind of drives around back to Brooklyn to, to walk through his, his favorite park without realizing that that when you're sending a message that everybody's supposed to be hunkering down and staying at home, that maybe he should be he should be demonstrating that himself personally. Um, I, I, de Blasio is God. I don't know exactly how to answer this, Alec. I mean, it's, it's you want me been, to rescue you? Yeah, you jump in, Kathy. You'll do it more politically than I will because I am. This is a first-time experience for all of us, and I really think that the governor and mayor have done as much as they possibly could on this balancing act between seeing 900,000 people out of work, children out of school and not getting an education, kids not graduating, closing. This was a terribly painful decision to make, and I will give them both credit. Both of them have consulted with the health community, number one, with the business community and employers, number two, with the educators, number three. They've both worked their tails off to get computers to kids who didn't have them. China, for a while, cut us off from supplies, the masks and the gowns, etc. De Blasio set up a whole system. We're making those in the Navy Yard. We've delivered as of today, a million face shields to our hospitals out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. They're feeding hundreds of thousands of people, the city is, under uh, Catherine Garcia, the sanitation commissioner, was anointed food czar, and she's taken over. They're doing a terrific job of feeding the, the health care workers, of feeding the kids uh, that are no longer getting school lunches. The dimensions of this crisis, and for, you know, government often can't walk and chew gum at the same time. This has been a crisis on every front. I've been on the phone with them 24-7, and they're all working their tails off. Right. What would you like to see Cuomo do in the short term and the long term, the state? Well, number one is the city and state have to be, have to be speaking with one voice, obviously. I guess you just made my <laughs> point, which is a very difficult thing, between de Blasio and Cuomo, so I'm told. Well, and it was between Rudy and Pataki. And I, it, it's all uh, between Lindsay and Rockefeller. It's always been. There, there's a tension there. Um, New York City is the economic heavyweight, and the upstate has always felt we screwed around with their politics. That doesn't go away, and there's a natural tension there. But but so far, so good. Uh, we had them together announcing the closure of the subway at, from 1 to 5 in the morning. They both had to sell it. It was particularly controversial because it meant getting the homeless out of the subway, and that's a very politically charged issue, and they stuck together on that, sharing the responsibilities between the city public health system and the larger voluntary system that the state regulates, they understand the importance of working together, particularly as we start to reopen the economy and bring people back. We have to sell confidence. That will not happen if we're a house divided, if we're a city and state competing with each other. New York historically has been resilient because we were pragmatic. During Occupy Wall Street, the Washington AFL-CIO, Trumpka, tried to get the unions to march with Occupy Wall Street, to march down Broadway in protest and create a giant outpouring. 
organized labor leaders refused to do it. They said, we need the financial industry in New York. We need them to come back. And they rose above the ideological to come down on the side of New York. And that's the moral, the, the lesson that we have to take forward. We've got to stick together. I, I was thinking as you were talking, Kathy, in the 70s, um, to help the city get out of its financial crisis, the Rudin family and, and members of the real estate community started prepaying taxes because they knew that the city needed the receipts immediately. Correct, correct. And you know, right now, um, the big companies, Bloomberg announced this, some of the banks have announced it, MasterCard, they're paying their vendors within one or two days as soon as they can for the very yeah. same reason. Just to keep the money in the keep system and to and keep, keep businesses business. going. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. I'll also just say on the, to take the regional perspective, Kathy will be shocked, Governor Cuomo has also been instrumental in pulling together the neighboring states and maybe laying the groundwork for creating more of an ongoing coordination between these states on investment policies and other things. Because if all the things come to pass where some people start to say, let's, let's leave accounts payable outside Manhattan, well, what we'd like is for them to stay in the metropolitan region, for, for the businesses to see themselves as regionally based, distributing their, their workforce across the region as needs and costs make the most sense. And that's beneficial for all of us. And I, and I think that we're, I think it's been tremendous leadership on the part of the governors uh, up and down the Northeast working together. One question I had for you, Kathy, you spoke out forcefully against the city's workers' bill of rights granting sick leave and hazard pay for essential workers, which, of course, put you at odds with the Corey Johnson and so for people like that. Why, why was that the case? Well, I testified yesterday that it's not a matter of lack of compassion. We all share that. But the burden of some of these um, of some of these requirements, and this is focused on essential industries. Well, essential industries is everything from the securities industry, Wall Street, to the healthcare workers, to the grocery store workers, etc. And there's a lot of difference in those. And at the federal level, we have done a lot to get money to workers with the enriched unemployment. There are issues of resources. Do we have the resources? The businesses that they're asking to pay essential workers and the hospitals, by the way, they are all stretched very thin financially. So it's not that you can just pass a law like you could do in the last 12 years uh, when we had prosperity. These businesses have profit margins of 5% or less and a lot of those are gone. Our uh, consumer spending year over year is down 37% in New York City since a year ago. So that money has disappeared from our economy. There's a tendency to think, well, we can make a law and fix this. A law will not fix this. We have compassion for these workers. We all want to reward them. But you're not going to do that with a law. You have to figure out another way to do that. And in the case of the 1970s crisis, the unions, the workers sacrifice. They sacrifice their salary increases, the public service workers. Do you think we can count on that again? That's what was my next question, which was, do you think that New York unions, which are pretty tough unions, can be relied upon to sacrifice again? 
I absolutely do. I no, absolutely yeah. do. I think they care about New York. They've got a huge stake in the future of the city. Just as I think everybody has to sacrifice, people have to see that business is sacrificing. People have to see funds that are being raised by the 1% to support the undocumented workers who don't qualify for the Trump unemployment insurance. That's the kind of thing that's going on in New York. Top-end restaurants that are delivering meals to poor communities and to healthcare workers. I absolutely believe that everyone is going to make a sacrifice for the city because we all love it. We've got to get that back. The question is timing and how much suffering is between now and then. Yeah, if I can, if I can agree with that. And, and one of the things that we do have as an advantage in New York, frankly, is that we went through these tough times over the last 20 years between 9-11, 2008, Sandy, The city came together after each of those communities started looking out for each other, started to realize how how important those connections were. Because I talk to my counterparts around the country, and I don't think other cities and metro regions have that kind of resiliency that New York does because they haven't been tested over the last generation the way we have. I'm trying to focus myself on what we can control, what what, what we have the power to change. You know, one thing we're all very concerned about is Broadway, because Broadway is maybe not a big cylinder in the city's economy, but it's one of them. And I've been on uh, line and talking to people a lot about what we're going to do. Do you know who I suggest you talk to? Uh, Henry Timms, who's president of Lincoln Center. That's a very good point. Todd Hames from the Roundabout Theater, which I'm on the board of. Not to end on a downer, but the Arts and culture, even more so than restaurants, it's really hard to see what it's going to take for Lincoln Center and and, and Broadway to come back. That's going to be really hard. Some of the big ones which have, listen, the Philharmonic that I'm on the board of had reserves that they were piling up in order to do the renovation of David Geffen Hall. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I think they're going to be okay in terms of they're going to survive. It's just that they're going to have to dip into that money that was capital improvement money as operating cash. Yeah. And then we're going to to have to go back several spaces on the game board in terms of raising money. Listen, uh, I'm very grateful, not only for you doing the podcast, but for the work that you do on behalf of the people of the city of New York. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Stay safe. And uh, I'm going to be sending you uh, my proposal for the funding for therapy for 62-year-old out-of-work actors. I'll add it in the fifth plan. (laughs) Well, you also have an important role as a champion for the city that everybody would enjoy hearing from, Alex. Thank you. Kathy Wilde and Tom Wright, at least the private sector effort to bring the city back from this pandemic will be in good hands. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Get really into your favorite shows and movies all in one place with Flex, a 4K streaming box you get free with Xfinity Internet. And get Peacock Premium at no additional cost. Learn more at Xfinity.com slash Flex. Restrictions apply requires postpaid Xfinity Internet excluding Internet essentials. One device included. This is Steven Jackson, co-host of the podcast All the Smoke, a production of the Black Effect and iHeartMedia in partnership with Showtime. Each week, my brother Matt Barnes and I, two NBA champions, sit down with the biggest names in sports and culture, the great DMX. How special was he as an artist? At his height, he was as big as any rapper out there. 
I mean, he was one of the greatest to ever touch the mic. Join Matt and I every week for All the Smoke to hear interviews you won't get anywhere else. Subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.